Father, we do want to thank you very much for this chance to uh, study the Bible. Thank you that you tell us about the future so that our lives now can be different. And please do that as we study the Bible tonight and help us to see how you are the one who uh, will bring that future into our lives and that you would do that even in the present by the work of your Holy Spirit. Teach us these things, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> chapter, Exodus, chapter 23, verse 1. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor should you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many, so as to pervert justice. Nor should you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving it with him. You shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. For six years, you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But on the seventh year, you shall let it rest and lie fallow that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave, the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard, and with your olive orchard. For in six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Pay attention to all that I have said to you and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Three times a year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest, or the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. And you shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year all your males appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, 
or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. And you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Well, <clears throat> let's uh, pause there. I think the children are going to go off into the, their groups. And uh, Natalie will explain all about the young goat and the mother's milk. Uh, we'll pause there while the children leave and then we'll come back. Great, well, we've uh, had the Bible reading in Exodus chapter 23. Let's uh, just see what it means for us. And let me ask you a question. Can you imagine what heaven is going to be like? If you start nodding your head, I'll tell you to stop. Uh, imagining, because you don't need to imagine, the Bible tells us what heaven is going to be like, but the Bible does it in a very strange way. It takes a group of people that um, uh, were once slaves in a land called Egypt, and God chose this group of people, and he rescued them from that past life where they were slaves and now he's leading them into a new future and on the way he tells them how to live in that future before they get there that's what Exodus chapter 23 is all about as you look at it you see what God's government is going to be like if I can put it like that in the new country to show us what God's government is like in his kingdom, in our future as well. And therefore that tells you, if God is telling people how to live the new life in this present world, then I want to explain to you that the Bible tells us that actually heaven is not out there somewhere God beams you up Scotty into this new place uh, heaven the Bible tells us is actually living a new life in a new world that we will live in when Jesus comes back think about it at the very start of the Bible God and man are living together on earth. And therefore, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 13, you see that God is walking with man in the cool of the day in the garden. Man and God together in this world. And then you look at the very end of the Bible. Do you fancy doing that? Revelation chapter 23 and verse 3. Revelation chapter 23, where keep it easy for the Iranians, they just go from one end of the Bible to the other. The wrong end, if you ask me, but uh, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't design their language. Uh, someone back to front did. So, uh, sorry, if um, <clears throat> any Iranian listens to this on tape, um, I am not serious. Uh, sorry, I'm, did I say Revelation chapter 23? Uh, you, you, <laughs> you'd have a job finding that. I mean, Revelation chapter 21, verse 3. 
Got that? Page 1041. You just get to the maps and you turn left. Okay? Page 1041. Uh, Revelation chapter 21 verse 3 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall be there be any mourning or crying or pain. Anyway, if the former things have passed away. So, at the start of the Bible, God is with man. At the end of the Bible, God is with man. In the middle of the Bible, you've got Jesus coming and you've got God perfectly happy in our environment. Doing exactly what he will do at the end. He gives a foretaste. He wipes away every tear from the eye, doesn't he? With all the different things that he does. Showing what life on earth will be like in its perfection when Jesus returns. His first visit was a preview of that. Now, in this passage, once again, you've got God with his people. In this case, he's going to take them into a new country, but he is going to be with them. In verse 20, if you have a look, we didn't read this, but I'm going to send an angel before you. In other words, God is going to be there, but in this way, he will be with them, and he will bring them to the place. As they travel, he will be there. Now, that's why they've got to listen to the angel, because he displays all the characteristics of God himself. He's doing what God himself does. Therefore, in chapter 23, verse 21, um, be careful to pay attention, obey his voice. You will say that about God. Well, that's what you do with his angel. Don't rebel against him. He won't pardon your transgressions. For my name is in him. God and this angel are the same. Have the same name. So that is what it's going to be like. God with his people in their new country. That's heaven. Now you don't see that today because you can see in verse 1 that heaven has not arrived. It's not the perfect life straight away because you can see in chapter 23 verse 1 bad things are happening, bad reports are being spread. So it's not a perfect world just yet. But what this passage is telling us that even though you might be living in a world where there is evil, a world that ultimately God will come and judge, even so, when people are doing bad stuff against you, you can live heavenly in your response to that. And so that's what we're going to be seeing as we learn from Exodus chapter 23. But please get this really straight early on. We're not living this new life and living heavenly in order that one day we can then get heaven as a reward. We live this life because heaven is already guaranteed and promised and therefore you start living now because you already have that future. And you then foretaste that future 
to live it, not to earn it. Yeah? So, what does it mean to live like heaven now? You might say, heaven might be a bit like that. Uh, it's uh, a perfect country. People have that ideal view of heaven. But actually, the Bible tells us that heaven is much more like a city. If you want to know heaven, come and live in Dagenham. <laughs> right? Uh, <laughs> so, uh, so there you are. Uh, so heaven, the Bible talks about heaven as a city where people live in close relationship with each other. And I don't think you get a better example of that than Dagnum. At least of people living closely together. Heaven hasn't come yet uh, in every other way. But how do we start living heaven now? We're first, um, first thing of two things. Heaven's a place where there is serving and not selfing. Now, when I put that into Iranian, I got into big trouble because it's not good English, therefore they don't understand it. But Iranian is actually not selfish. But you get the idea with the word. And it's there in verses 1 to 9. And if I can suggest to you this thing, that we become selfish people, we are selfing people, when we mainly want other people to like us. And so we live for their approval. And I think that's what you see in this passage in verse 2, where it says, you shall not fall in with many to do evil. In other words, don't do stuff because everyone else is doing it and therefore you need their approval and therefore you jump into the same way of living as well. Don't do it because everybody else is doing it because you want to be popular with everybody else. No, don't be uh, uh, falling with the many. Don't side with the many in verse 2. And you can actually side with the many in two ways. You can do it in a bad way. So that if someone is saying bad things about you and everybody else is joining in and saying bad things about you, well, I join in as well because I want everybody else to like me and so therefore the bad words are said in verse 2 and 3. That's one way of doing it. Verse 2. But I think you can side with the many doing good things as well because verse 3 is interesting, isn't it? Don't be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. Now normally you'd expect the Bible to say, go and take the poor man's side. But then actually that's a popular thing to do. Uh, it's a, oh, that person's siding with the poor person. That's a very good person. And we get a bit of a reputation for doing that. No, don't side with the poor man because he's poor. I side with him if he's right. Don't side with him just because he's poor. We had someone who was part of our church family a while back uh, for a stage, and she was very conscious that she was... Uh, badly treated by others. She was, she'd been a victim uh, for a very long time. Uh, and lots of agencies dived in to try and help her without asking questions whether she was right. But just because she was a victim, they all went and said, what can we do to help? 
And you can actually do that, can't you? Because if there's a fashion to help victims, well, you get a good name if you pick up any victim and um, serve them. But it doesn't always uh, mean uh, they're right and that it's a helpful thing to do. So you can actually do things for the approval of others, either bad things or good things, but you can actually serve uh, other people and, and, and hurt them or help them for wrong reasons. That's what selfing does. It goes for the opinion of other people. But serving love is very different. You can see that in verses 4 and 5. Where you love other people, but the Bible love is a very different and strange love. The Bible love, if I can put it like this, is enemy love. And so, how many people are against you and don't like you and are hurting you? Well, they may be your enemies, but if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, bring it back to him. If you see a donkey, one who hates you, lying on his burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. So, if someone's, if your enemy's in trouble, drop everything and do everything you can uh, to help. I know, I know, I know, I know, it's very tempting to say, but well, he deserves it, doesn't he? After all he's done to me, I'm jolly glad that that blasted ox has got the weight on top of him. Now let's see how he's going to get himself out of that fix. No, don't take that line. What we do is we want to uh, help him in every single way so that his problem becomes our problem. We feel what he feels when he feels helpless and in need. You see, the opposite of enemy love is only to like the people who like you. And that's selfing, isn't it? That's selfish love. Essentially, what you're doing is you're loving yourself and you do stuff to get other people to make them love you. But this is a different love. This is a love that doesn't depend on other people to make you feel better. And therefore, in verse 6, you see it helps the poor person. This time, do help the poor person in his lawsuit, because in this case, he happens to be right. Now do this, even though you might get into trouble for siding with the poor person. Because maybe in verse 8, there are people who <clears throat> like you to think the way that they think, and they'd do anything nice to you to help you to think the way that they think, in verse 8. So, you shall take no bride, for the bride blinds the clear sight and subverts the course of those who are in the right. So, yeah, don't go uh, uh, hurting the poor person because they can't do anything back to you. No, be kind. This is heavenly love that cares for people who can't give anything back. Why? Because of verse 9. Because verse 9 tells you the key. You won't oppress Sajna because you know the heart of Sajna. You were Sajna in the land of Egypt. In other words, you know what God has done for you, don't you? 
You know how much God loves you. You know what a mess you were in in Egypt and how God has been wonderfully gracious to you. Now, once you know that you have been loved, that's all you need. You don't then need the love of any other person in the world. Just to know how much you are loved by him will give you freedom. And then you don't need to earn the love of other people because you are already fully loved. And therefore, who cares what other people think about you? Even if they hate your guts, you can still love them. But you need to have the security of knowing that God loves you to be then freed to love others. And my friends, heaven will be a place of security like that. When you are in God's company, in his future, you will know with great confidence and fullness how much he loves you. We're in that environment of God's love for you in heaven, you will wonderfully delight to serve anyone who comes your way. Because that's the security that love has when we are with him. Now, we don't have to be thinking back to the times we were sojourners in Egypt because we can think what it was like on the cross. On the cross, Jesus died for his enemies and those who didn't love him and hated him. And as a result of that, we can start now loving others because he loved us in that way. And that's why we find our security in him and not in selfing and looking for the desires of the, the approval of others. So that's one way to be like heaven, serving but not selfing. Secondly, by trusting and partying. I'll tell you why I put that heading up. Because we might just simply say, sorry, uh, we've got Iranian translation here, we've got Bulgarian partying over there. Uh, I think we're, 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 we're somehow able to, uh, to get the hang of this. Right. Why would a farmer work hard and grow things for six years and then do absolutely nothing for the seventh year? Yeah. <laughs> Retirement normally lasts for more than one year. Ask Verona. Um, so it is, a, it, is a, it, is a, it is a it is a thing, isn't it, that why is it that God says don't grow? The seventh year you do nothing. Why? You see, it's not a worry for the farmer because the food supply hasn't stopped. I mean, things will continue to uh, keep growing. Uh, and, um, and so therefore, in that sense, the farmer's not worried about the seventh year and then not having any food because he hasn't done any work. Now, the stuff will keep growing. What's different about the seventh year is now everybody can dive in and have a bit of the action. So whoever poor in the land comes into the field, well, they can have as much as they want. It's an all-you-can-eat restaurant right through the seventh year. And what they leave over, well, the animals will turn up and have a go. 
and have their fill. And so what you've got now is a new situation where everything is being provided for you, but actually you've got to share it with everyone else as well. That takes enormous trust and confidence that God will provide and care. But that is an anticipation. They're being taught to anticipate heaven because they are taught to being anticipate the longer day, the longer year when God will provide for them and they enjoy his generosity along with all his people as well. So the big message here is on the seventh year, I'm going to teach you to trust. And my friend, the lesson for us is trust that God will look after you as you share what you have with others. So in other words, you don't earn as much as you can every minute you can from your fields. But remember, it's not how much you earn as much as you can, but remember what God has given you as much as you can. I think that's the reason why it says here, look, be careful about other religions. And he goes on to say that straight after the six years thing. Um, and certainly you might notice in verse 12 that every week you build up your confidence in God before the six years and the seventh year. Six days you do your work. On the seventh day you rest. You learn trust. You learn to get ready for the future on the seventh day. Uh, that's why it's a wonderful thing for us to come here and to encourage each other to, to, to start getting ready for that uh, new future that God will bring. And that's why I think there is then a danger in verse 13 that God alerts us to. Be careful you don't go to other gods because every other system in this world will tell you, live for this life. And if you get a future, well, that's a bonus. But guys, this is what life is all about. Make yourself as comfortable as you can with as much as you can here and now. The Bible, though, doesn't go that way. It doesn't say, come on, I'm going to tell you how to live this life and get this life right. It tells you, I'm going to tell you about the future. Get that right. And you can start uh, listening and living for God here and now. That means, yes, you do work responsibly in the six years, in the six days. Yeah, God's not saying just pack it all up and sit down. You work responsibly, but don't rely on work. Trust and rely on God to provide for you. That's the message. And trust that God is one massive giver. Uh, That uh, seems to be the thing. And they, they learn that through the six years. And they learn that through three different feasts that they have. That are all there to tell them what God has done. So the first feast is there in uh, verse uh, uh, 15. The feast of unleavened bread. Remember we studied the Passover way back in chapter uh, 12 of Exodus. And we saw how. God rescued his people 
from their old lives. And God gave them wonderful freedom. So that's the first feast. Remember how God, uh, at the appointed mind, they brought, came out of the land of Egypt. The second feast is the feast of first fruits, or called the harvest, where they, be, they bring the first of the harvest, say, now we know that God is going to provide for us because we have this foretaste of what's to come. And the Bible incidentally tells us that the whole event of Pentecost was on this feast. But God says, I'm going to give you the first fruits of my presence before the full experience that you have. And so therefore, the Bible talks about that, that the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, just a, 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 a foretaste of living heaven because the Spirit's at work inside of us. And then you get uh, the uh, final feast, the feast of in gathering in Verse 16, which is at the end of the year when you gather in the fruit of your work. In other words, when you start saying, actually, there will come a day when this whole creation of God will yield everything. There will be a new heaven and a new earth with this sort of abundance as you look at your whole harvest um, uh, uh, barn full of good things. And you see what God is uh, telling us, a picture of the ultimate future that he will bring. But the big message of all this is God is the one who will give it to you. He is the generous God. Anticipate and live with this God in your mind. That's why I think it says uh, it, it, the, male, the males should gather. Uh, because I think uh, the men are meant to be the heads of the household that set the tone of gratitude over the rest of their family. It says, you, should, you shan't appear before me empty-handed. Not to say, right, okay, you must be generous, but to say, look, you will never appear before God empty-handed because you will never have empty hands. He will give you all that you need. And so the big message is love God for all that he has given you. Now, this is not yet. They haven't had any harvest yet. They're still in a desert. They haven't grown anything. But they're not going to even try until they get into their new country. But this is all about the future. But live now, anticipating what that future will be. That's the message of Exodus chapter 23. And therefore, I think that's the reason why the Bible tells you no mixed messages. Don't, don't have leaven, which is a sign of sin, and offer the blood of sacrifice, which is you know, the forgiveness of sin. You can't say, right, okay, I'm going to sin, and I'm going to get forgiven, and I'll keep doing those two things together. No, those don't match. And I think that's the idea behind don't boil a kid in its mother's milk. Don't, in other words, separate what gives life from what is death. It's, 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 it's those things are separated with this new uh, uh, life in view. And just one last little thing. Notice that this new life is guaranteed because God is the one who's going to do it. If you look, we didn't read this bit, but from verse 20 on, you see how God is the one who's going to send his angels to guard 
them on the way. That implies that they are weak. They need guarding. But God will be looking after them. He will drive out uh, the nations. Um, he will do it. They're, they're too weak to do it themselves. But he will do it. He will drive them out. The main player is going to be him. And he will do it bit by bit. He, 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 he won't do it all uh, in one. In verse uh, 29, he'll do it in stages. I'll not drive them out before you in one year, lest the land becomes desolate, wild beasts multiply against you. No, little by little, I will drive them out. I will give you this in the stages that you'll be able to manage. Because let me tell you, you're going to be living in a massive big place. In verse 31, have a look at the boundaries. They set your border from the Red Sea, the Sea of the Philistines, and from the wilderness, the Euphrates, where you get a map out and it's a very big area. They're not going to get it all in one. It is going to be a huge inheritance that they've been given, but they will be given it bit by bit. And they will get that. God will guarantee and do it. Please note that it is only God's people who will be living in the new country. All the others will be driven out. There will be no one outside God's people now living in this uh, part of the world. And therefore God's people are to take great care that they don't go and distract themselves with idols. This future is for them. And we might say at this stage they haven't got it. It's still in the future. But we are now living 3,000 years after. And we can see that God did give them this new land. God did take them in. God did do it stage by stage. And as we see that God has done this once, we realize that God's future is not pie in the sky when you die. It's just uh, a repeat of what he's done before. Well, what does that uh, mean for us uh, today? Well, if we're someone who's new, I want to suggest that uh, it might be just worth taking this future kingdom of God seriously. So often it's a joke, isn't it? And people do talk about it and make fun of it by saying it is pie in the sky when you die by and by. But Exodus chapter 23 is a real historical pointer to a people living with new serving love for others in their community, living in joy, living in trust. And we've already seen a demonstration of that in history 3,000 years ago. We saw another demonstration of that at the time of Jesus, where people lived together in a new way around him in his kingdom. And I think that is partly glimpsed today in a church where Christians learn to love each other so the outside watching world can see a new community of love and care at work. These are not unreal, theoretical, ethereal visions that we have. 
these are practical day-to-day -day realities. So my friends, if you're someone new to this, why would you want to stay outside when there is a word like this saying, come in. Come in, because even though it may be that we've been enemies of God in the past, we know this is a God who loves enemies. He helps us to love our enemies. He loves you. Don't stay outside. Come in. Tonight, ask him, please let me into your kingdom, that I might live in this new life, in this new way. What happens if you've been to church a few times already? And old people, I think, uh, around have knocked around churches. Uh, some people have knocked around quite a few churches. And I think probably a lot of church life sends out the message that coming to services is the important thing. And you're a Christian, if you come to church, you go to the services regularly. And someone told me today, uh, not told me, told uh, Debbie, look, uh, uh, we go to church every Sunday and therefore everything is fine. I want to point out to you that actually what we're looking at when we think about the future is not services, but relationships. And if we find ourselves, therefore, relating to God, if you like, in this way, through services, and we spend more time in services rather than with people talking and concerned and caring for them, then I want to say, my friends, that you're not a Christian. And that you will hate heaven. Because heaven is all about relationships. And if relationships don't turn you on, heaven really will leave you cold. We need to understand uh, maybe more about the Bible and our need to love even those we don't like who get things wrong, who may even hate us. Heaven is to step into a new world of relationships, not into a church service. And then thirdly, what happens if you're a genuine believer? You love to relate to people in this way, yes, but the trouble is that where we find that difficult, don't we? We all lead selfie lives. I know we're set apart to show the world that we're in a different kingdom. I just wish I was better at doing that because I find myself selfing more than surfing. And I hate it. Is there any hope for someone like me? Thank you. I'm just so happy you're wrong. Because Exodus chapter 23 tells us. Uh, why can't we have her sitting in the front? We can keep an eye on her. <laughs> Friends, have you noticed how this chapter ends? And I think this is, this is maybe some hope for us. That when it comes to inhabiting this new life, it is interesting how God leads his people to drive out the obstacles bit by bit. It takes time. 
be patient if you're like me feeling frustrated that progress seems to be slow. But God will do this in stages, in bit by bit steps forward. The obstacles will be taken away and you will be drawn increasingly into that life that he gives. Don't despair that that is our experience now because God will give us the guarantee of making us like him. Not selfish, but serving in love and uh, being more like his son. So my friend, Exodus chapter 23 is 3,000 years old, but it is telling us about what life in the future will be like. It promises that God will be with us, taking us into a future like that. And as we understand and see that is our future, we now begin to understand when we go out into the new week what our present might be like as we live anticipating the future in our relationships today. That's a great thing to ask God to help us with and I'm going to suggest that we end by doing that and uh, let's uh, take a minute to pray quietly and then I'll conclude. Well, we've had a minute of quiet, let's pray together. Let me pray. Father, we do want to Thank you for your word. Thank you that uh, it is so uh, relevant to our future as it was to the people to whom you first spoke uh, that come out of Egypt. And we pray that you would please help us, Father, to order and form our relationships under your government in the way that leads us to deeper love for others more than for ourselves, in a way that leads us to greater trust and uh, delight in your goodness and provision for us, and that we might uh, see that that is the headline uh, uh, description of our lives, that we are always on the receiving end from you. And please would you help us, Father, to grow like you, step by step, bit by bit, in the way that we conform to the image of the Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.